Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. And while you're doing that, uh, last week after the service, somebody came up to me and said, Pastor Rick, it was so great to sit by you during your sermon last week. And I said, what on earth are you talking about? (laughs) And they said, you want to go check out the balcony, because this was a balcony person that told me this. (laughs) And so uh, I went up there and saw that somebody had put a photo of me and put, this seat is reserved for Pastor Rick. And I think it might still be there. Yes, you're sitting beside me up there, right? Good, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, balcony people, for always saving me a seat. I appreciate that very much. So. <laughs> All right, that had nothing to do with my sermon, but let's look at Galatians 2, <laughs> verse 11. This is a continuation from last week. And so Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, that's that yellow region north, and today's action actually takes place not in Galatia, but in Antioch there on the top right where it says starting point, pointing down in Syria. That is a very multicultural church made up of Jews and Gentiles and background. That's where the action takes place today. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to continue from last week. So starting at verse 11, it says, When Cephas came to Antioch, so that's Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's before God. For before certain men came from James, that's James, the half-brother of Jesus in Jerusalem, before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So by the way, I know this is Father's Day, but what a great reminder that if you are a leader in any way, that your actions and your words matter, that you can influence people either for good or in this case, negatively. And also, if you are the kind of person that gets influenced easily, you need to have a lot of discernment because this is Peter, the Apostle Peter, who's messing up. You don't just follow a leader because they have a certain title or because you're used to following them. You need lots of discernment from the Lord. So verse 14, when I, Paul, saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And we'll stop right there. You can be seated. Last week, I started this sermon talking about justification. So let me give you a brief reminder of what it is. Justification is God's act where he declares us righteous in his sight. So God does it. And at the moment of faith, not works, the moment of faith we believe in Jesus Christ, he declares us righteous in his sight, even though we've done nothing good or nothing to earn that. And there's really two parts to justification. When you believe in Jesus, it's just as if I never sinned. Say that with me. 
just as if I never sinned. So your sins are wiped away, you're forgiven, you're not under any condemnation or guilt. But it's not just that. It's also, the second part, it's just as if I lived the life Christ lived. Say that with me. Just as if I lived the life Christ lived. So this is really important because God just doesn't, just doesn't get, a, get rid of a negative, your sins, and then you start at zero. No, he also gives you a new status so that when God sees you, he actually sees his beloved son, Jesus Christ. It's as if you've done exactly what Christ did in his life to earn that perfect reward. That's how God sees you. Isn't that amazing? One theologian said it like this, and I mentioned this last week. It's as if we were on death row and God takes us off death row, but he doesn't stop there. He then gives us the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's how God sees us now. We have access to God. We have a status with God. We have an identity with Christ. We are his beloved children. So that's a definition of justification. Let's keep going in verse 17 and finish off the passage. It says, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Do you know what Paul's saying there? It's a little confusing. But I think he's saying that if we really are justified by faith in Christ, does that mean we can kind of do whatever we want to? That we don't have to obey the law, that the law doesn't matter, that Christ actually is promoting sin because God's going to forgive us anyway. And what does Paul say? Absolutely not. We still obey, but just out of a totally different motivation. And then he says in verse 18, which is also really hard to understand, he says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, that is, if I go back to trying to be saved by the works of the law and the Old Testament, if I rebuild that system, then I really would be a lawbreaker. In other words, if I really try to follow the law, the law is going to show me that I can't do it. It's going to expose my sin. It's going to bring condemnation and guilt. And that's what verse 19 actually gets to on screen. It says, for through the law, that's the Old Testament law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. So Paul is saying the law could not save me. I actually had to die to it and trying to earn my salvation. The law only exposed my sin and showed my need for a savior. So it's through the law I actually died to the law so that I can finally live for God. And verse 20 spells out how that happens. That when we believe in Christ, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then verse 21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So we said last week, justification by faith impacts us in a very personal way, and this is still all, all by way of review. Number one, it changes our identity and stops all our efforts of self-justification. It changes our identity at our heart and stops all our efforts of self-justification. So what I mean by this is no longer do we have to prove ourselves or try to find our worth in trying to obey God because we can't do it anyway. We need God to do it, Christ to do it for us. No longer do we have to look at things like money or sexuality or career or even our family and kids to ultimately define us. Those things can be good, but they are not the ultimate thing. They are not our identity. Christ is our identity because he says it is finished. He accomplished what we could not accomplish. He brings our justification. We don't have to do that ourselves. 
And now we're going to look at the second way today. The second way that justification by faith impacts us is it gets rid of all the isms in our heart. Say that with me. It gets rid of all the isms in our heart. Is that clear? Clear as mud? We'll talk about that here in a second. If you look at verse 11 and following, Peter has a problem. He comes to Antioch and Paul opposes him because he used to eat with the Gentiles. But then on the next screen in verses 12 and 13, when these people from James arrived, these Jews, people from the circumcision party, he begins to draw back and he stops eating with the Gentiles. So what is Peter doing? He is separating himself as a former Jew from eating with and associating with the Gentiles in this place called Antioch, Antioch, this very multicultural church filled with Jews and Gentiles who have now become Christians. And Paul will have none of it. Why is this such a big deal? Why didn't Peter know better? Well, I think, I think we can relate to Peter. I mean, we can have some sympathy on Peter because Peter is a Jew by background, and he would have known the Old Testament law, including books like Leviticus. You ever read Leviticus, by the way? That's where all Bible reading plans seem to falter. You get to Leviticus, and you start reading about the clean and unclean laws and the bodily emissions laws and like the skin laws, all this weird stuff where God is showing that if you want to approach him, you have to be clean. You cannot approach him if you're unclean. And the law that seems to be coming out here is in Leviticus chapter 11, where God had said there's certain foods you can eat that are clean and certain foods that are unclean, like the pig, unfortunately, and unfortunately, bacon. Sorry, guys. But you couldn't eat those things because <laughs> they're unclean. And so God had specific requirements that if you're going to approach him, you have to do it his way. So you can imagine these Jews are used to eating certain things and not eating certain things, and they come to Christ, and it's hard to break free from that. In fact, these Jews probably would have separated themselves from the Gentiles because they were afraid that by being with the Gentiles, they might eat something that was unclean or just become unclean because they're with the Gentiles. So before we start bashing on Peter, we realize, man, he, he, had, he had to get through a lot of baggage to come to where he is today. But I ultimately think he should have known better. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus shows us that he taught Peter he should know better. Jesus says to his disciples, are you so dull? Boy, Jesus is honest. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So Peter should have known that every single food that he eats now, including bacon, is clean. <laughs> In addition, there's another passage where God reveals a vision to Peter. And so pop quiz, I need a volunteer to shout it out. Does anyone know where God shows Peter this special vision that he can eat anything now? Anyone know where that's found besides the Bible? It's in the Bible, yes. But what book of the Bible is it found in? Acts? Anyone know what chapters? Somebody this morning said yes. What's that? 11. That's one of them. And also chapter 10. So Acts 10 and 11. This is your homework, by the way. Read that. Because in this, God reveals to Peter a, a sheet that comes down from heaven. He has a vision where it's all these unclean animals. And God tells Peter to get up and kill these animals, Peter, and eat them. 
And Peter's like, surely not. I'm not going to eat anything unclean. But God tells him, what I've called clean, you should not consider unclean. And this becomes a huge object lesson because God calls Peter to take the gospel to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and share the gospel with him and stay with them and eat with them. And it finally dawns on Peter, oh, yes, this is why I had the vision so that God could teach me I should not call unclean what he has made clean. So what book of the Bible is it found in again? Acts. And what chapters? 10 and 11. There's your homework. So Peter should have known better. But I can almost imagine Peter being conflicted with this too because he might have had really good reasons not to eat with them, these Gentiles. Because remember, he's from Jerusalem. And if word gets back to Jerusalem that he's eating with Gentiles, this might compromise his mission to the Jews who may say, hey, I'm not going to hear about Christ. You ate with Gentiles. You're unclean, Peter. So maybe he thought, well, for the sake of mission, I'm going to separate myself. Or maybe he thought for the sake of unity back in Jerusalem, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles because that might bring division in our young church in Jerusalem. So for now, I'm going to do this so that we are not disunified when I go back. Or maybe even it's possible that he was worried that if he ate with the Gentiles, this circumcision party, those who really were for circumcision to be saved, they might cause the church in Jerusalem to be persecuted. So you can imagine his reasoning, if I eat with the Gentiles, this might bring persecution on my family and brothers and sisters in Christ. He might have had really good reasons, but it's not good enough for Paul. In verse 14, chapter 2, Paul says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of them all, because this is a public sin and requires public confrontation. So Paul sees that Peter and Barnabas and so on is not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So do you know what Peter's problem is? He has a gospel problem. He has failed to incorporate and believe and trust in his heart, even as a Christian, the gospel fully. And this is a gospel issue that Paul confronts him on because if he doesn't confront Peter on this, the church in Antioch might think, well, I better eat these foods to really, or not eat these foods to really be saved. Or I better really follow the Old Testament law to really be saved. Or I better become a Jew to really be saved. So do you see what's at stake here? The gospel's at stake. Unity's at stake. Peter needs to apply justification by faith. So that's what we're going to do here in point number two. Let's go back to point number two, which is clear as mud. Justification by faith gets rid of all the isms in our heart. Say that with me. It gets rid of all the isms in our heart. And by isms, I mean isms like racism, classism, nationalism, sexism, discriminationism, that might be a word or not, but <laughs> divisionism, being divisive, sectarianism. So if point number one dealt with our identity with God and dealt with ourself, as we get our identity secure in Christ, it enables us in way number two to get rid of all these isms that we struggle with as a people, both inside the church and outside the church. And really the ism beneath all the isms is legalism. Say that with me. Legalism. Because legalism is adding something to the gospel to really be saved. And in all these isms that I just mentioned, when you view people through that lens, you are adding something to the gospel. You are not keeping justification by faith 
central in your life and your heart, and thus causing racism and classism and discriminationism. It's hard to say. So let's look at a few of these things and make it really personal for a second. Let's think of racism. Do we ever struggle with racism here in Adams County or in the area? Yes. Now, I know Bern is not the most culturally diverse place on the planet. I get that. <laughs> After living in the Chicago area and even Lima, Bern is not that diverse racially and ethnically. But there are some minorities around here. If you're part of the majority culture, sad to say, I've heard people talk poorly about those who may work from Japan at the FCC plant or those who may work as migrant workers at Red Gold. Sometimes if we're not careful, we speak and think and view them as kind of second-class citizens because of where they're from and what their skin color is. You see, if you're part of the majority culture, it's easy to put down minorities because that kind of props up your identity, makes you feel good about yourself and kind of manufactures that self-esteem that you feel like you need because you're not being secure in Christ. Ironically, if you're part of minority culture, sometimes it's also easy to do the same thing to majority culture because you as a people group may feel oppressed and like you've suffered, and you have. And so it's easy for that suffering and that oppression to be your identity, so much so you look down on everyone else who has not experienced that or suffered like you have. Make sense? So whether you're part of majority culture or minority culture, it is easy to have a sense of self-justification by putting others down. Let's talk about the Amish for a second. Do we ever look down on the Amish around here? Is that a form of racism, you could say? I think so. Sometimes when I hear people talk, we talk about Amish as if they are less than human, or I met an Amish person today, and is, is their Amishness their primary identity we should be viewing them as? No. In fact, if you think about justification by faith, we should view them as much in need of the gospel as we need. We should view ourselves as much like them, that we need the gospel of Jesus Christ just as much as they do. And they can be saved just the same way we are. Yes, their form of legalism may be a little more obvious than ours, but we too struggle with legalism as well. We all need the gospel just as much as our fellow Amish brothers and sisters do. Well, let's think of a few others. I remember when I was here in high school, do you know what we called people from Jay County? I remember Pastor Max preaching a sermon on this when we were getting ready to plant the rock in Portland. What's the term we use to call people from Jay County? You can say it, it's okay. Jay Tucky. When I was in Lima, Ohio, we often called people from Spencerville, Spencer Tucky as well. <laughs> what are we communicating about people when we call them that or call that area that? Some of you are smiling because you know exactly what we're communicating about those people. It's easy even here in Bern, I've noticed that depending on where you're from, like if you're from outside of town or in town or from outside the county, it's easy to look down on someone because of that. Now that's, that's not racism per se, but that is viewing them not through the lens of justification by faith, but by something else. Another ism, geographyism. <laughs> Here's another one. People who live in Geneva. Do we ever look down on them? I've heard that one before. 
By the way, if you are from Geneva or Jay County, you are so welcome here. Let me just say so. During my time in Lima, Ohio, Lima is a very racially divided city. It's about half black and half white. And I would often preach to a congregation that had a mixture of both. And what was interesting, whenever we talked about racism, I said, I want you to fill in the blank. If you're a white person, I want you to fill in this blank. In your head, not out loud, black people are so blank. What's your first instinct as a white person? And likewise, if you're African-American, fill in the blank. White people are so blank. Let me tell you, in eight years of ministry in Lima, I heard so many words to describe both people groups. Not nice words either. (laughs) Because we are looking down on people based on skin color. You know, it's easy to think that we are not like that, that we are not racist. But let me tell you, All of us should assume that we are racist at some level. I'm a racist. You're a racist. We all need to own it. There's a pastor I heard talk about this. He said when he went to seminary preparing for ministry, he had a friend named Elward, an African-American man, and he gave us gracious but bare-knuckled advice. He told this white pastor, you're a racist, you know. You don't mean to be, and you don't want to be, but you are. You can't really help it. For example, he said, when black people do things in a certain way, you say, well, that's your culture. But when white people do things in a certain way, now listen to this, you say, that's just the right way to do things. You don't realize that you really have a culture. You are blind to how many of your beliefs and practices are cultural. And thankfully, this white pastor began to see how in so many ways we made our cultural biases into moral principles and then judged people of other races as being inferior His case was so strong and fair that to our surprise, we agreed with him. I think the default mode of the human heart is justification by works. It is racism. It is all these isms. But it's not just racism. It's also classism. Say that with me. Classism. Do you know what I mean by that? People of different economic classes, you have your lower class, middle class, and upper class, and I'm not sure what the defining marks are totally. But no matter where you are on that spectrum financially, there's usually someone that's lower than you and higher than you, no matter where you're at. And the chances are, the higher you are on that economic spectrum, the chances are it's easier to look down on someone lower than you. So for instance, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, even thought myself when I was in Lima, which is a very struggling, under-resourced city, how many times I would look down on poor people and think, man, if they would just work harder, if they would just make better decisions, if they would just be more responsible. You ever thought that, by the way? Nobody's raising their hand because they don't want to admit it. But I've thought that. And true, yes, the Bible talks a lot about responsibility and hard work. Just read Proverbs. But when I am viewing my brother or sister through that lens, I am viewing them through the lens of justification by works. I'm saying their ultimate worth is in what they do and achieve and make economically. Interestingly, too, in Lima, I noticed that if you are poor financially, you also look down on those who are richer. I heard so many times from those who were poor just how much they hate rich people. All those rich people are so blank. You see, I really can't quote a lot of my quotes today because they're just not appropriate, but you could probably fill in the blank. No matter where you are on the economic spectrum, you can tend to identify with your group and thus judge the other group not based on justification by faith, 
but based on some other standard, works. Here's a couple other isms. Denominationalism, say that with me. Denominationalism, where we judge people based on the minors of our denomination rather than the majors. There's also abilityism, say that. Abilityism, where we judge people like if you're more talented and have more ability, you look down on those who have less or vice versa. You're jealous of those who have more. Even people that annoy us. There's annoyingism, where often we won't eat with them like Peter because we are not viewing them through the lens of the gospel. So which ism do you struggle with this morning? And chances are, if you are honest, all of us struggle with an ism. But we are viewing people as less than, not made in the image of God, judging them not based by the gospel and how they can be saved in the gospel, but by some other standard that we have set up. One scholar says it like this, we all know Christians who belong to classes and groups and personality types that we disdain in our lives. Working class Christians may have a distaste for Christians from a wealthier side of society and vice versa. Christians from one political persuasion may look down on those from another. Very talented Christians may feel unhappy that people they consider mediocre are treated as equal parts of the church. Socially polished Christians feel uncomfortable around believers who are socially awkward or marginal. By the way, I resonate with that social awkwardness, yes. We feel uncomfortable around people whose cultural emphases are different to ours. And we, and we may respond to all this as Peter did. We may look nice on the outside. We may even talk to such people at church, but we won't actually eat with them and do community with them and invite such people into our lives and break down those barriers. All this comes from not living in line with the truth of the gospel because without the gospel, this is really important, without the gospel, our hearts have to manufacture an identity. Our hearts have to manufacture self-esteem by comparing our group with other groups. But the gospel tells us we are all unclean without Christ and we are only clean in Christ. Do you know what Romans 15, 7 says? It says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. How did Christ accept us? Did he judge us based on our skin color or our economic status? No, he judged us based on we need him. He judged us based on our sin, and he judges us now based on if we are in Jesus Christ, if we have believed in him, not by works, but by faith. And the beautiful thing about this gospel is it's available to all. Whether you're from Japan or Mexico Adams County or Jay County, wherever you're from, we are all sinners and we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the real ism beneath all these isms, what did I say it was again? Which ism? Legalism. Where we are adding something to the gospel to say that you must be saved, not just by Jesus, but by this, then you're a real Christian. But the gospel shatters that ism. If you look closely on verse 12, I think it's really insightful what happens here. It says in verse 12, when they arrived, so these people from Jerusalem, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Why? Because he was what? Afraid. Afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. You see, if your identity is in anything else other than Jesus Christ, guess what you're going to be? Afraid. You're always going to be searching for identity in some place, 
You're always going to be afraid of what other people think of you. Peter was very concerned about this circumcision group, and maybe he even had good reasons, but he was ultimately more afraid of them than caring what God thought. If your identity is in anything else other than Jesus, you will be a racist, a classist, a nationalist, a discriminationalist, a denominationalist. Add it. Keep adding to the list. But if your identity is in Christ, it says in Scripture that perfect love casts out fear. If your identity is in Christ, you will belong to Christ. You are his beloved child. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, no matter what anybody else thinks about you, you are so secure in Christ because of what he's done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit right now, just search our hearts. Lord, reveal to us where we are struggling with these isms. Lord, I pray that I even mention ones that we struggle with, not because I want to call people out, but because I want by your spirit to show them where they fall short and where they need you by your grace to help them. Lord, I pray that we would be comfortable in showing the ugliness of our heart and also comfortable in receiving your grace anew and afresh. Lord, thank you that your gospel is for people like us who are racist and classist and all sorts of ists and isms. And thank you too that we could come here today and think some more about this topic. Father, I pray that First Missionary Church would be a people whose identity is so fixed on Christ that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I pray that that would so sink into our hearts that we are such a welcoming people, that we don't look at people ultimately through the lens of race or class or anything else, but we see them as dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And I even pray, Father, that this would cause us to eat with one another, to welcome each other into our homes, to break down barriers of community that are present within this area. I pray this would break down our cliques in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that you would be central in how we view people. Lord, may this break down so many barriers that people can look at us and say, I know that first missionary is filled with Christians by their love for one another. Father, we pray all these things and dedicate these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.